Today's scripture is Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Allison. morning again, everybody. Uh, my name's Sean, if I don't know you. I'm the lead pastor, teach pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Um, you might not know if this is your first time uh, how Redemption operates, but we're one church with nine different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona. Each one of those congregations is elder-led, which means we have plurality of leadership uh, at our highest level, and then lead pastor-led. So I'm the lead pastor for Redemption Peoria. Uh, you might have questions about what that means, how that works, all that stuff. Uh, if, or honestly, you've been coming for a while, True story, I just met somebody between services. She's been coming here for four years, and she never came up and said hi. Come on, come on. I told her, I was like, come on. That's, so if you've been coming for a while, come up and say hi. Please, that'd be great. Don't wait four years to do that. Um, so we're going to uh, jump into Malachi. We're almost done with this beast, and uh, it's been, it feels like uh, it's a hammer and we're the nail. Honestly, I tried to explain that last week. It, it feels like the moment you think, I talked about that line of fragility, the moment you feel like, Okay, yeah, I've kind of given them enough. God just keeps going, keeps meleeing his people here. Uh, I want to give the context to it here in a second, but before I do, uh, I want to pray just for our time. Pray that God would uh, show us what we need to see in the scripture, that we wouldn't have a bias to it, and that he'd uh, give us faith so we can grow with it. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, yeah, first and foremost, for the ability to be able to study your word. Thanks that um, you've given us uh, you know, a period, a pocket in this week to we, we leave our houses, we come in our cars, we get here, and we gather together, and it's to know you more and to want to hear from you. And so that's really, really cool, really great. I, I pray, though, it wouldn't stop there. I pray for every believer in the room, they would be encouraged to continue to open up your word, that they uh, would find new um, nuggets of gold and treasure, God, uh, embedded in it. I pray that uh, as we open up and talk through Malachi, you'd be with us as you have been with us, that you would encourage us, rebuke us, give us faith so that we can grow. Uh, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so here's the context, okay? Uh, if you're not familiar at all with the Old Testament, I'll, that's all act, right? Not try to patronize anybody, but let's just pretend that's the case. God chooses this certain group of people to be his people. They're called the Israelites. As the story goes, they keep acting a fool, ain't getting anything right. They're just, just not. And what ends up happening is God says, listen, you guys got to fix this or I'm coming on the scene and it's going to be bad. And what ends up uh, happening is they don't listen as they're doing. And I don't mean just bad, like, oh, I don't know. They told a lie. I mean, really, really bad stuff, really bad stuff. Uh, 
murdering of children and pedophilia, bad, bad stuff. And as the story goes on, God says, listen, this is not okay. And he ends up having another nation, the Babylonians, essentially kidnap them, conquer them, bring them to that nation. There's a big part of your Old Testament that speaks to this. Eventually, the people of God, after they've been there for a period of time, are allowed to go back to their homeland, which is, as we know, is Israel. And as they're there, they're there for a hundred years, they start to revert back to how things have always been. And God says, no, 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 we're not doing this again. And so he sends this guy, Malachi, to declare what he wants to tell his people. He's called a prophet. He declares what he wants to tell him. It's been 100 years after that exile period. So that's where we get from Malachi. And, and honestly, it's, it, we're, we're, we're uh, reaching the end here. So it would be good for you just to know the things that we've spoken about. Up to this point, God starts this uh, whole deal off, this prophecy off with, hey, listen, I love you. I loved you before you knew I loved you. I loved you before you existed. I love you. So let's just understand that. Everything I'm going to say, it's going to be difficult, but know it comes from a posture of love. From there, he goes at leaders. He goes at what's going on within marriage. He goes in with uh, our own hearts and how we don't fear him, uh, how we have different gods and serve them in different ways. And he just goes and goes and goes and goes. And then today, he's going to do what he's been doing up to this point, talking about a specific topic, okay? And it's important that we understand uh, the background even for this in a lot of ways that we had. If you were with us in chapter 2 of verse 16, we have to get a little bit of background of how some of this uh, section of scriptures has been used in a lot of the wrong way. So let's jump in. Verse 6 of Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, it's the end of uh, your Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew. It's uh, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. It says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, there's two things I want you to see just in this first section. First of all, just know, if you're new, it's going to be a big Bible study together. We're just going to go through it verse by verse. That's how we feel like it's the best way to understand the Bible. And this first verse that we got, I want you to see there's a declaration about God here. God never changes. That's going to be part to the kind of the pulse of Malachi, which is, is going to say, you're doing things the way that you want to do them. You have your own ideas, but I'm telling you, I've never changed. I'm the common denominator here. I'm the point of reference to say, here's how things should be. I've never changed. Now, the irony is what we know of history, man has never changed either, but it's because for all the wrong reasons, right? Uh, and which we'll find here that the same excuses continue to come up that we give to something thousands and thousands of years ago. The other thing I want you to see is in verse 7, and I think it's important for us to stop at certain moments as we read the Bible and talk about this term, it's systematic theology. It sounds real fancy, but this term comes from this place and this idea that as we read the story of the Bible, it feels like you read something and you go, whoa, that's okay, it says this about God. And then you're reading the story, reading the story. Oh, it says this, that same, it said that back there. Okay, let's keep going to the story. Oh my gosh, it says this again. And what happens is, as you read the story, you notice there's certain things that pop up, right? And so what we do is we take those and we systematize them. We put them in a system. We go, here's what we can know about God. Here's what we can know about man. This verse in verse 7 is really, really beautiful when it comes to talks or when it speaks to um, God's love and his immutability, meaning his unchangeableness and, um, and what he calls man to do in regards to repentance. So in uh, my previous life before uh, I, I was a believer, uh, got saved at 16, ended up um, uh, getting tied up into the prosperity gospel movement, and, and I'll explain some of that here in a little bit. But uh, if you were to find me on a Friday and Saturday, you would find me. I was the dude, kid, not kidding. I was the dude with the uh, the loud voice on Mill Avenue, just preaching to people. Okay, 
And uh, there was somebody who was across the way from me. He had a megaphone, and he was just, I mean, he was calling people names. I mean, it was crazy. I was like, what? This dude ain't going to get anybody saved, right? But I was on the other side, and my tact was a little bit different. Um, but, you know, what, we, what you'd have is, like, the big holidays where people would gather in Tempe. Uh, for example, like the 4th of July. You're talking thousands of people are rolling through there. And they have to stop at a street light. Uh, because to cross the road, you're talking hundreds of people at a time, right? So this whole room, and what I would do is I would stand there, and I, I have, as people have said, I have a loud voice, and so I, I would stand there, and I would actually start with Malachi 3.7, and I would essentially say, listen, here's the reality. Everyone's coming with their own perspective. Everyone's coming with their own ideas, but what we know to be true is, what the Bible declares is, that not just you but your parents, your parents' parents, your parents' parents' parents, you've all had your own trajectory. You've had your own way. You've rebelled against God. And here's the reality. All you have to do is return. If today God's not going, no, I'm mad, I don't want you. I don't care what you did in the past. If you repent and say, it's done, hear me, it's done. No parent, if they could see within their child's heart as they rebel, right? And they, they could see in their, their kid's heart and their kid comes and they're truly broken for what they did. No parent goes, no, I believe you. We're just done. No parent does that. That comes from the Imago day that we're made in the image of God. And as our father, he's sitting there looking at you and I, looking at the people that were reading in Malachi and going, I know what you've done. You did what your parents did. You did what you always did. Your cycle is the cycle of sin over and over and over and you're so tired of it, and you're done with it, check it out. Just come to me. Just return. If you return to me, I'm here. I love you. I'll return to you. I'm here. I mean, listen to the beauty of that as we understand God's love. This is the posture that he's going to put in front of us as we continue on in our text. He goes on to say this. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. We're going to read that probably two or three more times. Um, But let me explain the first thing, what's going on. This is um, the part of the cadence that holds the book of Malachi together. Explain the first week. What happens is uh, six times in the book of Malachi, it has these stopping points where it goes like this. Uh, God or Malachi declare something whatever that declaration is. The people of God hear that declaration and they push back against the declaration with some kind of question. Then from there, God responds to their pushback. God declares, they push back. God responds to their pushback. That happened six times and that's how we broke up the book of Malachi. And we see this here again. Here is that rhythm. Listen to it again. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? There's the declaration. Their responses, their pushback. How have we robbed you? God responds to their pushback. In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So this is the the cadence. This is what we've had. Um, Now, with this, we get to hone in on what Malachi, what the Lord wants the people of God to see here. So so we have what what we've been looking for, this specific topic, and it is on tithes and offerings, which um, let's just jump in because this thing gets super messy real fast, okay? Okay. We did, the truth is, we did talk about this six months ago, um, if you were with us, and I'm going to reference some of that here in a little bit, but I I kind of want to start with uh, the idea when we read this text, um, I believe this is the right way, the right tone, the right posture. I believe, let me I believe what it says is what it says in Hebrew. 
okay? Like, I believe, like, that if we were to translate it, it's not the same as Malachi 2.16 when we talked about God hates divorce. This is a, a different thing that altogether, what this says here, it is true that God says, and I quote, will man rob God, you are robbing me. And that when the question is asked, how are we robbing you? You're robbing God in your tithes and your contributions, your tithes and your offerings. I think that's the right way to understand it. But at the same time, just because something is rightly translated doesn't mean it's rightly um, applied. And it's unfortunate that a lot of us are coming to the text and we hear the word ties and you hear uh, the church wants my money or whatever it is. And that's unfortunate because the reality is uh, the, the tr- this section of verses has been used in the prosperity gospel in our current time. Um, I've seen it many times being used like a hammer going, you don't give and you're robbing God, almost as if this like punch in the face. It was used in the 13 and 1400s by the Catholic church to have people give. It's been used in a lot of wrong ways. As a matter of fact, I was going to use one of my examples just being in that environment for so long, but I thought it would be better to show one of my boys' examples. Uh, He's from D.C. and his church growing up, uh, let me show you. So in 3.8, it says this. You can put up that slide. Will, uh, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? Go ahead. You can put up. That's all right. Put up the picture. So this is from my boy's home church. Uh, that, that's the real deal right there. Okay? Um, now, this is what I'm saying. This is the unfortunate nature. First of all, we're going to do this. Okay. No. Um, so, right? This is the idea of, like, here's all the people in the church. We see you, here are the people who are not tithing, okay? And, and here's the unfortunate nature of that. We know things like this when it comes to giving to the church. Some of you are rolling in today and you hear, oh, you just want my money. You, you just see that sign. Like, oh, you're just going to guilt me into giving. And here, here's where this becomes really unfortunate. You allow the pendulum to swing and so you don't even hear what God wants to say. You just hear all of the bad all the prosperity gospels, all the greed that's been in the church. And I want to affirm it. Yes and amen. It's been bad. But because that's true, you don't even want to hear what the Lord has to say. I tell my kids this all the time. Eventually, you're going to have to figure out whether or not you want to follow Jesus. Now, I'm helping you in this journey, but I can't make you love Jesus. But here's something you got to be careful. As you, you turn 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, the tendency is going to be to rebel against your dad and your mom's religion. That's going to be your tendency. And all I'm going to say is, as you seek out truth, find truth where it is. And I believe it is in Jesus Christ as I've sought sought this truth out. You find where it is, but don't do it out of rebellion. Don't let rebellion be something. Oh, that's the way it is. I'm out. Don't let that be the reason you don't see Christ. And in the same way, don't let things like this be the reason. Oh, I I don't want to hear about tithing. I don't want to hear about giving. You just want my money. Listen to me. Let me step out for a second. My wife knows this more than anybody. And I think the elders and the leaders... I don't want your money. I have been in rooms where pastors have taken advantage of people. If you think that we're going through Malachi so we can eventually get to Malachi 3, 7, and 8, you're wrong. You're wrong. The, the goal is not to like, buy something new. I, here's, I don't know what anybody gives in this room. We have a certain elder set aside. I have no idea. I can't treat anyone differently. I don't want your money. But listen, if your prayer life lacked, if your uh, reading life lacked as you weren't in the word, we would say something. We believe this is an issue, a discipleship thing. And so uh, because of that, um, I want to kind of draw our attention back to what we talked about six months ago, especially because some of you weren't here. 
So let me, give me two minutes to explain what I tried to explain a few months back. Here, here's, here's the truth. Um, in our five years as existing as a church, when we planted five years ago, we don't really or have ever really talked about money unless it came up in the text. And what we saw were there two outcomes because of this. Um, number one, a lot of you would talk to your friends when they found out you would give to a church and you were lumped into things like that picture. You were lumped into the Kenneth Copelands and the Creflo Dollars of the world. Oh, like, oh, the church just wants your money. And you didn't have good, robust theology to defend why you gave. And so we said, you know what? Six months of this happened. Let's talk about giving. So at least we have a reason. Number two, what we found is as a congregation, we're one of the lowest giving congregations, even though we're the fourth largest in one of the more affluent areas in the Valley. Number two, we're far below the national average as a congregation with the rest of the churches in the country. So it says something, right? Because I don't think we're way more poor than the rest of the country. It seems we're closer to average when it comes to income, maybe above average. So as we look at that, we go, well, why aren't we giving? It's worth acknowledging. It's worth, worth looking at. And so what I did six months ago is I said, let's treat giving as if it's a person and let's tell that person's story. And so what we did is we went through the Old Testament and I tried to bring up, I used about 45 verses to explain the story of giving in the Old Testament. I walked us through, here's what giving happened, here's how it happened, here's where it came from, here's where it started, here's what was asked of, so on and so forth. We went through that, and you can go and listen to that if you want to. And I ended up walking with five observations that I want to share, just to kind of catch you up, that I think um, when Malachi declares this, as God declares this to the people of God in our, our uh, text today, I think they would be aware of these five observations. When they hear tithes and contributions, they would hear these, these five things kind of echoing in their mind. So it, I'll read them just for the sake of clarity. Number one, what I found in the story of giving, and I shared this six months ago, is um, everyone, everyone was involved. No one was exempt in giving 10%, not even kings. Everybody was to give 10%. Number two, there was a clear cycle that I found in the narrative When it came to sin, when the people of God were in sin, they weren't giving. And when they weren't giving, they were in sin. Through the whole story, the narrative of the Old Testament. um, And I give a ton of verses to to show that. The other thing that I recognized was communal um, giving was at the forefront of their minds. Meaning nobody was just going, I'm just going to give my 10% to blank. No, no, no. They, they gave together, and together they did something with their 10%. It wasn't individualistic. It was together. We all together say, let's give 10%. Number four, it was extremely detailed and intentional. Nobody, like, I remember being a youth pastor, and like, all right, we're going to take our tithes and offerings. You get, like, three bucks and a, you know, a button. But, like, what you have is everyone pulling out of their pockets, change whatever's there, and that's not. It was very set and intentional when they give. They knew what they were going to give beforehand. And then number five, um, I acknowledge the fact that when the people of God gave, they understood there wasn't some like mysterious void that they would give to. Meaning, like, I got $100, I plan to give this, and they just throw this $100 down a well. Great, I gave to God. They understood where it was going. And in the Old Testament, where it was going, was it, go- it was going very specifically to three different sections. First and foremost, it was going to the priests. There was a section of the people of God that were set aside to say, hey, we're going to take everybody's money, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to do two things with it. Number one, well, three things. Number one, we're going to be taken care of. Okay, that's what we saw with the priests. They, were, they would live off of and eat the grain offerings. Number two, we're going to take care of everybody in our body, in the people of Israel, meaning um, the walls need to be fixed. The priests would take, allocate money from the treasury. Uh, the temple needs to be fixed. Or um, Joe Schmo needs a new guitar. I have no idea what it is, right? What, however this needs to play out. Or somebody's rent needs to be paid. The, the people of God would take care of the people of God as it was funded through the tithes and offerings through the priests. And then from there, the third thing that it would go to is the poor outside of. 
the camp of Israel. So then there are people, soldiers, immigrants who would come in and they weren't rejecting them. They're saying, come into our community. We want to take care of you. And they would use those funds to take care of them. So as I looked through the story, the narrative of scripture said, okay, this is what it looks like. Now, now here's what I want to say. The people in Malachi here, they know that to be true. I would, I would, uh, I bet they would know and understand this narrative. And God is upset. This is, this is my guess at this. God is upset is because they're not doing that. He knows the narrative here. He knows how it should work. And the people of God, for whatever reason, fear, control, greed, whatever it is, they don't want to give or they're not giving. Which leads us to our next verse in our text, verse 10. It says this, God's declaration as, as he says, you're robbing me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. We're gonna talk about that back end um, in a minute here. Uh, there's two things there. I want you to see the word storehouse and full tithe. These are worth explaining. Storehouse, just so you're aware, the people of God at this time have a temple. And imagine a big room about the size of, uh, probably half this size and not as tall, uh, that was attached to the temple. And this room is set aside for anybody who has an offering when they bring it. There was a side for the treasury that would be taken care of, like a little makeshift bank. And then there was also a side for grain offerings or whatever people would offer. Now, the priest's job was to maintain and take care of that room as part of being a priest of the people of God. And so you'd have this side room. And so when he says this storehouse, that's what he means. It's actually used in the New Testament, which I'll read here in a minute. The second thing I want you to see is it says full tithe. It's interesting. Um, most commentators, and I would agree with them, would say, actually, this is the, this is the tell as to why God is upset. It's not that the people of God in this moment aren't giving. It's that they're not giving the full tithe. We actually saw this in chapter two. If you remember, um, the offerings that were being given were just crap offerings. Well, I know I'm supposed to give, so I, I, I give like 5% this month, right? And, and God in this moment is saying, I want the full tithe. Tithe literally translated means 10%. I want, I want a tenth of everything that you have. I want you to give it to the priest and let them disseminate amongst the community. That's what I want here. And they're not giving that full tithe. So let's stop, breathe for a second. With all this being said, before we come back to our text, the question that might be on your mind is, okay, as a believer, what do I do with this? I mean, is in this moment, should I read Malachi 3.8 as prescriptive? That was for the Old Testament, the people of God. Should I go, um, like, I'll read it again. For us, this is true for you. You're robbing God if you don't tithe. Is that a, is that a proper approach to what we, we can understand about tithing? Now, for us to get there, I want to explain this and, and, and kind of share some of the New, uh, New Testament nuances of this. But before we do, uh, I want to draw your attention back to what I said six months ago and where we started. As Jesus comes on the scene, I'm just telling y'all, he's very, very not concerned with the amount and how. He's not. I mean, you just read the words of Jesus and you find over and over, he is concerned with the why. He's concerned with what's going on in here. And so that's important um, for multiple reasons because Jesus, as he comes to fulfill the law, isn't doing away with the command to give. We find commands that you need to give all the time. He's just saying, if you're, if you're giving as a command to give because of the law, we've got problems. I'm telling you, I'm commanding you to give because of your heart as the Holy Spirit does something within you, which our text helps us evaluate. Malachi 3 here helps us evaluate where we are on this. There's something in our text that helps us, every person in this room, to know, okay, I can tune out from this point on. I don't need to listen to the rest of the sermon because how I answer this question right here depends on how I really feel. It's, it's a barometer for my heart. And here's the question. 
Do you believe that everything you have is God's? And if you don't give it, you're robbing him. Do you honestly, I need like the couch, the TV, the car, the house, the money in savings, the 401k, all of it, all of it. Do you believe everything belongs to God? Now, if you don't, it's a, we don't need to talk about the minutia of, of tithing. You're not there yet. You're not there. The reality is, like, it's tax season, right? And so some of you got to pay the government. Some of you, like me, I'm getting some money back, right? Okay. Um, and so here, here it is. Been, been uh, paying this tax. And if the government said, well, actually, you filed, but we owe you this amount of money, we're just not going to give it to you. Here's the problem with that. Some of you already think tax is theft, which we won't get into right now. Um, but the reality is, here, like, homie, that's my money. That's my money. You can't just take my money. What do you mean you're not going to give it to me? That's my money. Do you believe that? That the reality is when you don't give, you're not giving him what is his. You're robbing, you're stealing from God. Do you believe that? Now, with that said, if you, um, if you don't believe that, like I said, we don't need to, I mean, we're just asking all the wrong questions. You're going to go to rabbit trails, you're going to grow like upset with God for whatever reason. I just read a story, this 43-year-old man, he dressed up like his mom so he could take her driver's test for her. Um, because she had failed three times. He ended up getting caught. Um, and here's the reality. I just looked at the picture of this guy, totally dressed up in this dress wig. And I thought to myself, bro, like, if you're dressing up as your mom to take the driving test, the driving test is the least of your concerns. We've got other issues, okay? Like, we're not, like, we're, we're trying to go, like, don't even, so my point is, don't even worry about tithing if you're, like, if you're, your heart is not in a place where go, everything I have is God's. If that's not there, but if it is, the question remains, should I tithe? Should I tithe? So I, I want to do two things with that uh, in mind. Number one, I want to ask the question, should you tithe? And number two, should your tithe go to the church? Is the church the storehouse? Okay, so that's number one, should I tithe? Number two, um, is the church the, the, the storehouse? So uh, I want to read uh, Matthew 23, 23 for you. You can open, the, open up your Bible, but it's um, also be on the screen. I want to read this because... Um, a lot of times when, as believers, we come, new, you know, we Christians, we come to the New Testament, we say, tithing's never mentioned in the, in the New Testament. And that's not true. Um, it is mentioned, but how it catapults itself into the way we give is absolutely different, um, which we're going to unpack here. But it is mentioned. I want you to see this. In Matthew 23, 23, it says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The question there is, these you ought to have done, is he referring to the tithe? So let me show you another translation, which is the New Living Translation. It's more of a thought for thought getting at. I think they actually rightfully translate the way that we understand this. It's called a dynamic translation, the way we can understand what um, is, is being uh, got at here by, by uh, uh, Jesus. So uh, Matthew 23, 23 in the New Living Translation, it says this. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe, again, there it is, to tithe or give 10%, even of the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now, what I want to do is, 
what, what, what normally happens at this point when as we as believers, especially new believers or people who are anti-Christianity, you go, well, listen, it's way more important for me just to give my money away. I should, have, I should care for the poor, justice, mercy, love, faith. Those things are far more important. Let me just say this. No, duh. Yeah, nobody's disagreeing. Jesus isn't disagreeing with you there. Yes, when it comes to doing justice and mercy, more than you just giving 10% to a church, yes, no, but listen, but Jesus isn't doing what you're doing in your mind, which is holding those things up against one another. Jesus is saying, yes, tithe, but this is more important. Do you hear that? He's actually arguing, it seems he's putting them to work in congruence with one another. In a lot of ways, if you understand even what's going on, he's talking to Jews here, the Jews can only do their ministry because of the tithe they can care for the poor do justice the reality is if every believer tim was telling me this he ran the numbers before if everyone who claims to be christian in the u.s gave 10 percent, we're done with the welfare system you know whose job it is to take care of the poor in this country take care of those who can't take care of themselves to take care of the orphan ours it's the churches and if all of us every believer gave 10 percent, we don't gotta worry about social security anymore you want to know why because we'll take care of the elderly that has historically always been the church's job look up monasteries they were the doctors they took care of the orphans it was their job this is our job y'all and if we can't give and come together and say we're going to give this 10 percent, we can't do our job so yes i'll do justice and mercy yes and amen but it is not at the expense of giving the tithe it's just not. And Jesus is holding this up, which at this moment, this is where we start to get into this rhythm of understanding as believers. Well, I don't know if I should give it. It feels so kind of like constraining. It feels very legalistic. And here, here's what I want to say to this. My story just seems to be so different than some of you who are, grew up in the church. Because when, when I got saved at 16, um, I remember uh, 15 years old, I lied to Subway, said I was 16 years old, so I can get a job there. My official title was sandwich artist. Um, and I remember uh, getting my first check and I remember getting the money, and I'm just a way better believer than I guess most of you, because I remember thinking when I got that check, I, in my mind, I had no point of reference, wasn't raised in a church, never knew anything about Jesus. I remember thinking, I think I'm supposed to give half of this. Everything that I get, I, I'm supposed to give half to God, right? And it wasn't until someone like walked and they came alongside me and said, okay, here's what you can understand. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what this looks like. Now, I wasn't wrong in giving half, but my point is this. When we talk about giving 10%, you see it as constraining. I'm just not there with you, bro. I'm just not. Like, as we process Christ, I don't feel like giving is legalistic at all. And I think 10% is a starting place. It's not binding. Randy Alcorn, he speaks to this really, really well. It's a longer quote, but listen to this. He says this, I've heard Christians argue, often angrily, that tithing is legalism. Listen to these numbers. However, the average American Christian gives 2.5%. Even using 10% as a measure, the Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Christ. When we as New Testament believers living in a far more affluent society than ancient Israel give only a fraction of that given to the, or by the poorest of Old Testament believers, we surely must reevaluate our concept of grace giving. And when you consider that you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God and they didn't, the contrast becomes even more glaring. If you fear legalism, fine. Start with 11 or 12%. I mean, the reality is we're so afraid like, to be bound by this. And, and what I, what I want to put in front of you is, um, I think we need to be a little bit careful of where we're, we're trying to pocket the boogeyman of legalism in. I think the other side of this, we need to be careful of carnality and greed and control and fear. 
There's a, there's a reason that the people of God in Malachi aren't giving. And I think a lot of the symptoms there, a lot of the undertones are true for us, and we are far richer than they. I mean, you could hear it there in Randy Alcorn's uh, uh, quote. Like, maybe you don't like it, maybe you don't like what he's saying, but at least here's, it seems to be what he's saying is this. Listen, if you look around at our brothers and sisters around the world, and I've met a lot of them, well, I've met some of them, and in meeting them in the poorest parts of this world, they still give 10%. I know a pastor very specifically who prays every day that God would provide his food because he doesn't know where his meals are going to come from. And as he does this, he gives 10%. And I think Randy Alcorn's tone is one to say, you say you can't give 10%. Come on. Are you serious? We're the richest country in the world. Probably historically ever. I mean, you're in the top 3% of everyone in the world. Your brothers and sisters are scraping by in the slums, still giving a half of potato of what they have, and you're saying you can't give 10%. I mean, Randy Alcorn's point is, listen, there's something underneath that. Uh, What is grace not doing in your heart that you still feel scared? And maybe it is a fear thing, and that's worth acknowledging. Maybe it's a control thing. That's worth acknowledging. Maybe it's a greed thing. That's worth acknowledging. I don't know what it is, but his point, I think, is fair. Is where you are. Now, um, with that being said, my argument would be, yes, I think we should give 10% at minimum as believers. I think that's where it should start. But then that doesn't answer the second part of it, which is in our text, if it's prescriptive, um, should we give to the church as the quote-unquote storehouse? Is the church the storehouse? That's, that's what I think. Cool, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give at least 10%. But do I give it to the church? Do I give 5% of it to the church? 5%? What, what, what do I do? Um, first, let me read something to you about the, the storehouse uh, in, in Matthew 27. Um, the believers, the New Testament believers in the days of Jesus, and I would argue the early church, were aware of that storehouse that I described where the offerings were. Uh, you see this when Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus, uh, betrayed Jesus. He comes back to the religious leaders and he says, I don't want this money that you gave me to betray him. And he throws it back at them. Well, they actually use the same word that is used here in Malachi. They use this word treasury. So listen to it in Malachi 27 verses 5 and 6. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went, uh, went and hanged himself. That's Judas. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. That word treasury there is the same thing. And so I think the New Testament believers, I read that because I think context-wise, as the church is beginning, they're aware of a place that money would, would be to go. And so the question is, is the church the storehouse for us today? And I want to say yes. And I'm going to say yes. I don't want to say yes. I am going to say yes. Um, but I want to say it like this. Yes. Okay. Uh, but it becomes real tricky in some of the, the ways that, that this is going to be played out. And I, I, I say yes. And the way I stand, and if asked and pressed, I would, I would stand on my yes Because um, if we understand the narrative of giving that I talked about in the Old Testament, it seems clear to me, at least, as I studied the story of giving through the whole, whole Bible, that the way that the New Testament church operates is the same way in allocating those funds as the Old Testament church. Meaning we're all aware in Acts 2 that everyone comes together, we all give our possessions, and we have this like money purse that, hey, whoever needs, Fred needs something, Nancy needs something, whoever needs it, whatever they got, let's, let's provide for them. But it's not like this big 
you know, bucket of money that anybody can come up and take from. What we find is in Acts 4 and 5, everyone's bringing the money to the leaders of the church at the time, the apostles. And from there, they're disseminating. This is the same way that we saw the Old Testament narrative play out. And so I would contend that the way we try to uh, do this at Redemption Peoria is at least to where we see the scripture, the most biblically faithful we can get. Meaning, here's how this works. As a congregation, together, communally, we all give 10%, myself included. As we give this 10%, we put it in this spot where we have five men, our elders, who look over those funds and we say, this is where we want the money to go. It's allocated towards certain things. And the three big buckets that, three big buckets that we give to uh, in this are the same way that you can understand the Old Testament uh, uh, offerings and what the priests did. Number one, we as elders identify certain people with a church of 800 people. We need certain people who get paid to make sure we're taking care of certain things. There are things some of you are not aware of at all that week to week take place, not just counseling, not just hospital visits, but just taking care of meeting here, right? John Demeter has to deal constantly with uh, Centennial High School. Hey, guess what? Congratulations. You can't be in the gym this week or you can't meet there. We got to go to this school, right? And this is a process. So we, as elders said, why don't we pay John to be able to do one of this part of as being part of his job? We would say that's the same way as, okay, the priests have some of this money. The second way is we have money allocated towards us for us. And either somebody came up to me between services and said, well, uh, my engine blew, on, uh, blew out on the way to church this morning. We say, well, as a church, we want to take care of you. We want to help you. We have something called RC grants that you, like, you can, you can uh, apply for and say, hey, listen, here's what I need money for, whatever, whatever, which leads to the third thing, which is the third big bucket. We give to the people outside of the church. And we want to be known as a church who gives. We want to give to places that, man, you may never come to Centennial High School. They may never go to a church ever, but we care about you. And we see that rhythm in the New Testament, right? And so um, as we process, I would argue, yes, the church is the storehouse. In the same way, there is a place that we have funds allocated to kind of take care of those three big things. With that said, uh, let me go back to our text. Um, Actually, no, before I do, let me read this first to you. I don't know if I have time, but I actually have time to, to read this real quick. Um, if you were to take this, this tithe that we're given 10% and were to give it to the church, there's actually one verse in the Bible that tells us exactly how to do this. It's all like encapsulated in one verse. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. If you ever want to know, okay, what should I do? Like, what's the synopsis of tithing? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Let me read what, what you can see from this. Number one, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 tells us that um, all giving is to be exercised on the Lord's day, meaning once a week, we're to gather and we're to give, okay? Number two, it seems that everyone is to be involved. You can see in verse uh, 16, 2, you can, first one is on the first day of every week. That's what I just read. The second part is each of you, every single person in this room is to be involved, Number three, giving is to be planned beforehand, right? So not my old youth pastor days, but the reality is you're a grown up. You're an adult. You know what bills are coming. And so before you plan out all those, you look at all this, you go, here's what I'm giving to the Lord. That, that seems to be the, the proper approach according to 1 Corinthians, which is a New Testament scripture as we follow the person of Jesus. And then number four, we give, at least uh, uh, in, in 16.2, um, in reference to our prosperity or as each may prosper. Meaning this, there are some of you in the room who, give, who make $30,000 a year, probably a teacher, okay? Um, and you give $30,000 a year, and there are some of you in the room who make $100,000 a year. Well, the reality is the person who makes $100,000 a year should be giving more than the person who makes $30,000 a year. 
Now, I've always contended, let me just throw this out to you. Some of you are in the room right now and going, I give my 10%, I'm good, right? And I just want to go, well, that could be some legalism as well. So let me say this, right? If you're in the room and you make $50,000 and you go to work tomorrow and your boss goes, I want to give you a $50,000 raise. Well, one, I don't, congratulations, I don't know what you did to do that. <laughs> but two, I think the New Testament says at $50,000, you had a way of living that you were fine. You were fine. $50,000, you were great. Like you're, you're making your car payment. You're, you're making your house payment. There's food on the table. You're good. You're good. What I don't think the New Testament would encourage you to do is you got that $50,000 raise. Now up your means of living to $100,000. I would contend, as I will hear in a moment, that now you got $50,000 to give away. Now you can give all the more. That's what I would contend. But again, you might not like that. Um, so anyway, you can see in 1 Corinthians 16 too. So here's what I did six months ago, and this is where we'll start to wind down. I tried to like rack my brain, what would be a good like anchor point to go, well, what does New Testament giving look like? What does New, Tem- uh, New Testament tithing look like? And I tried to give a definition of using scripture of redemptive tithing. What, what, what is uh, someone who's redeemed in Christ, how do they tithe? And this is the definition, take it or you know, leave it. It's not like canon or anything. This is what I would argue for us as believers, we should walk away with as we're reading this, that we, we, uh, we need to be as believers tithers. We together, all of us together, should give sacrificially, cheerfully, and regularly to the church we belong to. Entrusting the leaders appointed by God to that church to serve the congregation with those finances in three ways, okay? By paying some vocationally to work to serve the body. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Providing communal needs such as a meeting place, financial support within the body. You can see this in Acts 2. And directly giving to those outside of our own gathering. You can see that in Matthew 25. It's my best attempt to go, here's what this looks like. We need to give in these certain ways all together. So let's finish our text together. Here's how I want to wrap it up. Um, I want to go down now to verse 10. I want to read this. With that in mind, right, we took a huge side turn there. Well, should we be tithers? If all of that's true, listen to what God says to his people in this text when he's telling them to tithe, okay? so what it says. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Verse uh, 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your wine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. I want to listen to that. You know, whenever, I, I, whenever I'm preaching on Sunday, I always think of two T's that I want to do really, really well. Number one, I want to teach the text really well. I want to like stand before Jesus one day and go, I really believe this is what the text said. But the other side that I really want to get right is the tone. I want to hear the tone. There, there are times where the text is yelling, which if you've been coming to church long enough, it seems like apparently all the texts yell. Um, but there are other times when the text is soft and it, it needs to be communicated softly, right? And so as I, as I try to get the tone right, when I hear this, when I hear that tone, it's just such like this, you're not given to me because you're scared. You're not given to me because you, um, you have baggage. You're not given to me because you want control for whatever reason. And if, if you would just test me, like know that I got you. Like test me in this. Check this out. You're here and, and you, you've got it nominally under control. That's fine. But nobody in this room who doesn't want to give to the Lord goes, 
But by not giving to the Lord, the windows of heaven are going to be opened up to me. You're okay with being where you are. And you don't even hear the tone of the Lord going, if you would trust me, the windows of heaven would be opened up to you. I mean, the t- like, I think of uh, this last summer, uh, we went to Mexico to build uh, some homes with a group, my family and I. And my middle son, Titus, my youngest son, Titus, he was uh, nine years old. He's only 10 a year ago this last summer. And so as he's, he's, he, the night before, as we're getting ready to go to sleep as a camp, we're all tired. We go scorpion hunting. We're in the middle of Mexico, okay? And we found a lot of scorpions. I won't tell you what we did to them, but we found a lot, okay? And as we, we went to bed that night, obviously scorpions are on Titus's mind. So we go to sleep, and he gets up in the middle of the night and says, Daddy, I, I got to go to the bathroom. So we got to walk across camp. We're in the middle of Mexico. It's dark, right? So I got a flashlight, and we're walking. He goes to the bathroom. He's half awake. And of course, we come across a cricket, okay? And Titus loses his mind, okay? And so he screams. It's the 2 a.m. He screams, and he runs into the abyss of darkness of Mexico. <laughs> now, I'm trying to get his attention, and I'm like, Titus, get over here, right? Now, in that moment, I'm kind of mad because it's a cricket, Titus. Number two, you're running towards the scorpion's bare feet right now, right? But more than anything, uh, I'll take care of the cricket. I'll take care of the cricket. Why are you running away from me? I'll take care of this. I'm your dad. That's my job to crush the crickets in your way, right? Now, now, now hear me. Hear me. I, this is the tone I hear as God saying, why are you going away from me? Why are you going away? I'll take care of this. This is nothing to me. You know what I own in the world? Everything. You think I can't come up with the $100, $200? I've got you in this. And God's declaration to these people is, I get it, the wall's falling apart. I get it, the temple's falling apart. I get it, your crops aren't growing. Trust me. Trust me. I know it doesn't make sense because you only got 100 kernels of corn here. I'm asking for 10 of them. I get it. But you won't starve. Trust me. That's the tone I hear at the back half of this. Now, what I love about this is God in this moment um, causes a little bit of frustration with us because of the prosperity gospel in our context. Meaning, um, we hear, and it's hard not to, um, a reward. I mean, it's there in Malachi. The reality is, if you give, God will give. And it's so hard because uh, the prosperity gospel, if you're not aware, in the last 15 years, 20, uh, probably 30 or 40 years, has been telling the church or people in the church or just hearing as outsiders have heard, if you give $7, you'll be blessed for seven days. $77, seven weeks, $777, seven months. You don't even want to know what you do if you give $7,000, right? And so what happens is we've taken advantage. The church has taken advantage. And I just want to contend, if you're not believing here, I would argue that's not the church. So let me just put that there and I'll leave it right where it is. But the prosperity gospel has convoluted the idea idea that if you give, God will give to you. And because of that, it it causes all these things. So let me, let me declare as much as I can for you. Try not to be responsive. I want to say yes and amen. If you trust God and give to him, he will, because it's here in the text, he will bless you. It seems the order you can see it from the whole position of text, give to God. Then God will bless your life in such a way that you will be, and I quote, a land of delight in verse 12, which we'll read here in a second. And the nations around you, you'll, 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 they'll see you as blessed. And it's hard not to believe that if you give to God, God will give to you. The, shrewd, the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16 says as much. Listen, if you're faithful with little, 
If you prove you're willing to give to the, the, the marginalized, you're, you're willing to give to people who don't have the panhandler on top of if you are willing to do that, you've proven yourself to give to the little in this little amount, I'll give you much to give. I will. It's hard not to see that. As a matter of fact, I'll go a step further and I'll say this. For some, God will bless you. He will bless you with more money. He will. Now, I breathe, right? Okay, I ain't Creflo Dollar right now. All I'm saying is the reality is, um, well, let me just read text before we get us all in trouble. 1 Corinthians 9, listen to this. You will be enriched in every way, you ready? To be generous in every way. So I'm just thinking this. Let me just think practically for a second. If I, I got four kids, I give them all $10, and, and uh, my youngest, let's say Anna, she gives away $8, and that's what I wanted them to do, and she only spends two of it, right? And then my other ones, they spend nine, and they gave me one. In that moment, when I know I want a need to be met, who do you think I'm going to trust? I'm going to trust my three-year-old, right? I'm going to go and get, okay, I trust. In this, I think God, yes, would say, yes, I will give you more, but check this out. We don't get to define the blessing, number one. Number two, he, he might give you more, but he's given you more to give away. That's why he's giving you more. Not for the bigger house, not for the car. So yes, you will be blessed, but you don't get to determine uh, the means of that blessing. And, I, and this is where our text will wrap up. Listen to this, verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You know his declaration to his people? The last declaration is, if you do this and you work in congruence in the way in which I say giving is to be in place, you will be, and I quote, a land of delight. You will be on mission. The people around you, they may not see new fancy car, but here's what they will know. They will see a harvest of righteousness they can't articulate. And they will recognize your heart, your joy, your love isn't wrapped up in your money. You freely give. You will be a land of delight. And hear me when I say this. In a consumeristic culture, that's what we need right now. We need believers who are not tied to their money like our neighbors are. It's a purpose of mission as well. I pray we see that as a church. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace towards us. Thank you that um, um, you've given us money to give. I mean, you've given us arms and legs and mouths to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, to be able to do jobs. There are many people in the world who don't even have the ability physically to work. And here we are. You've given us these things. And I pray, God, we would be faithful, faithful as we uh, receive the gift of the ability to work, that as we work and we make money, that we would recognize it as a gift from you, that all we have is yours. It is a blessing from you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that gift. I pray that our hearts would be churned in such a way that, Spirit, um, you move us towards being more and more of a generous people. I pray any person who's living in guilt in this moment or greed or a carnal mentality, whatever it is, I pray, Spirit, you would wash over that frozen heart and you allow them to see the goodness and grace of God, that they would give freely and not be tied up by legalism. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.